life there are always ups and downs. I am very grateful that in my life any downside turned out to be a blessing. We lived very modest. We resented the ostentatious way of living. We had no desire to drive a big car or to live in a big house. It's uh, very important to think big, think globally. You have to have a big, audacious goal. For me, uh, he's a mentor. He's uniformly admired by people around him. The way he treats people, I think that probably impressed me the most. An extremely hard worker. He's a tremendous problem solver. Generous and giving. He's one of the most uh, responsible people. I just liked him. From a small town in undivided India, to the streets of Delhi during the bloodshed of partition, to the hallowed halls of Harvard University, on assignments in Western and Eastern Europe, Africa, Latin America, China and Russia, and back to the S.M. Sagal Foundation in India, Suri Sagal's life is living proof that the greatest journeys are the ones that bring you home. I am a scientist by training and uh, in science you always experiment. You just don't accept things as they are. Perhaps the one person who knows the journey of Suri Sagal better than anyone else is author Mali Connell, whose 2014 book, Seeds for Change, chronicled his rise to greatness. The fact that Seeds for Change was originally only written for the family, and I think they have been and have been surprised to find out how many people not only love reading it, but have been inspired by it. Surinder Mohan Sagal was born on the 16th of May 1934 in Guliana village of the Punjab province in present-day Pakistan to a Sikh mother and a Hindu father. His father, Fakir Chand Sagal, fondly known as Shaji, was a member of the Indian National Congress and an associate of Mahatma Gandhi. My father, being a strong disciple of Gandhiji, always believed in education. That was the primary reason that uh, we had moved from our village where life was very comfortable to a town called Lala Musa. Lala Musa was a junction where many trains would go in different directions. We were living very close to the railway station. We had our own property, our own house. The Seigal family was well settled in Lala Musa, but slowly they started noticing communal issues cropping up in a place where Hindus and Muslims always got along well. Perhaps it was a sign of things to come. On August 14th, there was independence uh, declaration. Leaders gathered at the railway station, which is not too far from our house. And in the afternoon, all of a sudden, big mob of people making slogans and marching with swords and spears and sticks towards the town. Slogan was, Allahu Akbar, God is great. We sense big danger and that we were not even sure we are going to be alive or dead. In 1947, during the partition, Fakir Chand Sahagal decided that Lala Musa was not safe for the family, but being the community leader, he couldn't leave town. So he decided to send his eldest son and three out of his six daughters across the border. 13-year-old Suri was supposed to stay back with his parents. The train was supposed to come early in the morning. My my father woke, woke me up, I was sleeping, 
and you can put on your shorts or something and we are going to the railway station because you will just see of your sisters and brother because I was 13 uh, I was supposed to come back at the railway station in any compartment absolutely no space people were sitting on the roofs it was every space was taken and the train stopped maybe five or ten minutes and those who could get on could get on so two sisters went into one compartment the younger sister she ended up in a completely different compartment very close to the last compartment of the train my father said uh, somebody has to escort her i went completely unprepared, without clothes, without anything. I had flip-flops, I didn't have the proper shoes, and I got thrown into the train to come to, to India. His father shoved him onto the train at the last minute and giving him no knowledge of this, uh, and they saw each other. That was one of the questions I asked him. I said, what was the look on her face when she saw you get on the train with her? And later when I read that passage to the book to Surrey and I said, does this sound real? He said, yes, it made my eyes wet to remember it. I don't recall now exactly how many days we were in the train, but train made many stops. And there was no food, there was no water, and you could not go to town wherever the train stops. And we uh, hear again slogans in the next village, uh, the same slogan, Allahu Akbar, thank God the train was not attacked and we were safe, we reached uh, India. But on the way, we saw so many dead bodies on both sides of the track. In the months that followed, Suri and his siblings were scattered over Delhi, Meerut, and Amritsar without his family or any money to survive. It was one of the toughest times of Suri's life, and every day, he prayed for a miracle. Where I was, where my sisters were, where my... We had no communication with each other. These three girls were sitting in, uh, on the floor in Gurdwara, uh, praying what to do. Suddenly, a sick gentleman walks into the Gurdwara, my oldest uncle, which is from, based in Peshawar. At the same time, my friend, Gurbak Singh, he came to pray that evening. My uncle was delighted to see them. And then I met my three sisters. In the meantime, my parents had come but my brother had missed them because they were in the refugee camp in Amritsar. One day we were searching the refugee camp and I, I found my parents there. We were very, very delighted to meet, to see everybody because everybody was alive, not that kind of suffering which many other trains had. Through a series of remarkable incidences, his family all found each other at the same Gudwara in Delhi. And I said, isn't that amazing uh, that that would happen? And he said, it had to be a miracle. The family was happy to be reunited at last, but they had the uphill task of starting a new life from scratch. And Suri knew that a good education was essential for that. Life after partition, we had to start from scratch. Now the main focus was that children get education. We were living from hand to mouth. I managed to finish my college and finally I, I made contact uh, at Harvard University. Because I was first class first in uh, Punjab University. My field is uh, botany and genetics and agriculture. I got admission at Harvard. To arrange money for the travel and how to support yourself, that was not that easy. Once again, Suri had crossed borders in search of better opportunities. And while he was once again alone in a new country, 
he was destined to soon meet a lifelong companion. I met Suri very soon after my arrival. You know, people like you to meet other friends from your own country. And so I met that German friend and there he stood and uh, I just liked him. I thought he was a fascinating person. <laughs> we got introduced and we got along very well. They have been through very similar experiences, not only in their childhood, in different parts of the world, but then also when they came to America and met each other. Suri was in a new country, but this time he had a partner to support him. And together, they started their journey to success. My professor suggested that to get practical training in agriculture, I should go to Midwest. I accepted uh, an apprenticeship as a scientist and pioneer. He was still a student. I was committed to work for two years to pay back my passage. Then he graduated and he got that job in Iowa. So he moved away. And I still had one more year to go. Well, there were a lot of phone calls and sometimes letters. And then when my two years finished and I got a, a summer job at his company and I worked for his boss, rearranging the library of scientific papers. And I have no clue of scientific papers. But anyway, I did it. Suri and Edda had just been reunited in Iowa. Once again, Suri had to leave. It was time to find a more permanent solution to the problem. Pioneer offered me a job uh, if I wanted to work in the West Indies, which was Jamaica. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, Jamaica, that is uh, even more exotic than India. He took it and uh, then what to do? Should I stay in Des Moines and he goes by himself? or? What should we do? We were kind of un undecided. With the encouragement of some friends, well, you are rather than struggling with that decision. Why don't you get married? It's very simple. And then the problem is solved. And that's what happened. So we got married and we had a nice reception in his boss's house. They were like our grandparents, really. Then very next day, we left for Jamaica. And we didn't come back for six years. So people were teasing us, you know, that we were the people who took the longest honeymoon they ever knew. And of course, we came back to America with two children. Who looks at someone else and says, you want to go live in Jamaica for six years and run a company? Let's get married. Let's go do this. And they do, and two days later. It, you know, nowadays it seems so unreal. Once again, an adventure awaited Suri when he and Edda decided to get married and move to a foreign land. Jamaica was a new place. Pioneer, the company was starting a new breeding station. It was the first station outside the US. So I was very lucky to get it started from scratch. My first phase was in Jamaica when I was a scientist. Second phase was that I was asked to develop an international business. Growth was very quick and uh, we were very profitable. There were 1,600 people directly or indirectly reporting to me. It turned out to be a tremendous success beyond my expectations and beyond their expectations. 
when Suri and Edda came back to the US after six years in the Caribbean. Bigger and better opportunities awaited them. In 1970, I was transferred back to the U.S. It was a new business. It became a very, very profitable business. Suddenly, we had thousands of people reporting to me. We are making millions and millions of dollars of profit. In 1981, I was the president of Overseas Pioneer Overseas Corporation. I was in a very, very key position, which at that time was very, very rare for a person from India. There was one time Someone mentioned they didn't get the job because of their race. And I remember my dad very forcefully saying, that can't be your excuse. He created such good relationships with foreign leaders and foreign companies that it made Pioneer money to keep him in that role. After decades of working for others, Suri decided that the time had come to go out on his own. Sudi was ready to take the plunge into entrepreneurship. My wife and I, we together, we pooled our resources and uh, started our business. We started from scratch, from zero. Growth was very quick. We started with the eight people, and uh, at the end of 10 years, we had 650 people, employees. We have four companies. We one of the very large companies in India in the seed business. There was a little bit talk that somebody had interest in buying it, and Suri always said, no, 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 we are not for sale, because he enjoyed doing, and it was a wonderful business. The company got acquired by a large company from Germany, uh, Beer. Again, more than what we expected, it was a good, good sale. And these are four companies, including the company in Egypt. In a world where successful people are always on the lookout for more, Suri and Edda realized that they had more than they needed and decided to do something radical. Every single person on the ProAgro staff benefited uh, monetarily. Most lowly paid person in the company was now able to buy a house or whatever. I mean, he, he and Edda made that agreement that people needed to benefit because their whole philosophy from the beginning in business was people come first. 650 employees, they helped us build the business and they should be rewarded from the profit. To my dad, that is how the world is. He never wants to talk about himself. He talks about his team and he, he surrounds himself with a variety of people that will make everyone stronger. With all the success that he had achieved, Suri wanted to create lasting change instead of just creating a business empire. And he believed that all the money he earned would be worthwhile only if it could benefit the less fortunate. And this is how the SM Sagal Foundation was born. Whatever was left now after taking care of our people, we sort of figured out how much we need to live. We lived very modest. We lived in the same house which we bought in 1970. We never moved. All our kids went to public schools, not private school. Uh, we resented the ostentatious way of living. We had no desire to drive a big car or to live in a big house. Actually, an easy decision to put aside money. What we do with so much money, you know? So. We decided to, to have the foundation and do something for India. When they sold the company and we sat down as a family and discussed it and talked about how much and all those things, 
It didn't surprise any of us. And the decision was basically already made that most of it would go towards helping others. And we were all in agreement because that's how we were raised. Suri feels so strongly that he has an obligation to give back to a country that made it possible for him to qualify to get a PhD at Harvard. All those things that, he, that make him so passionate describing the foundation's work um, to, to make a difference. We felt very strongly that the rural India needs help. It was very important to help the poor people. Most of the time their life is spent in darkness. Rich people are getting richer and the poor people have nothing to eat. Despite being talented and hardworking, Suri has always maintained that he has been very fortunate in life and he has made it his life's mission to share the fruits of his success with the less fortunate. This explains the love and respect that he gets from the people around him. Like they say, they don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. The Sego Foundation is making quite an impact in, in, uh, in various programs in the villages. We will make impact on water security, impact in the area of food security and social justice. Any economic development must be inclusive because it must take care of the rural uh, people. Uh, otherwise, there is a lot of unrest in the country. We are working in that area of empowerment of the people. An empowered individual can create miracles. If you empower a woman, you impact the entire family. If you empower a young girl, you empower the next generation. Many NGOs come into villages and they're gone within a year or two once the funding dries up. And so the nice part about the Sagal Foundation is that we're there to stay until they don't need us. The community radio would be an effective tool to have to make a uh, to share this knowledge for many people at the same time. With the community radio, we can do this 180 villages at one time and sharing so much knowledge. It's called Al Fase Mevat, and the program has been extremely, extremely successful. Our goal was to convert the district of Mawat into good rural governance. We covered almost 400 villages in Mawat district. Then we moved to Rajasthan, now we are in Bihar, and uh, it is making a lot of difference in the lives of the people. It has an impact. It is a good program, and I, I am sure uh, it may not be in my lifetime, but someday it will be an all-India movement. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny, and Surinder Saigal is a shining example of it. Always starting from scratch, Suri has built strong organizations, successful companies, and most of all, a wonderful life for himself and for his family. He is who he is today, despite his circumstances, and not because of them. And as much as he would like to say that he has been lucky in life, the truth is that the world has been lucky to have a noble soul like Surinder Sangal. Catch us next week, same time, on Those Who Made It for yet another inspiring story, only on ZTV.